0: Welcome, everybody, to a Friday Fireside Chat. A Couple of reminders um, that we we are recording this, so don't say anything that you don't want your mother or The New York Times to find out about. Um, And these replays will be available on YouTube um, in four or five days, something like that. Uh, We do take questions in the chat. Um, We'll get to them if we have time. And if we don't, we'll follow up with you uh, after after the session. So welcome, everyone. So my guest this week is Zachary Carabao. He's a prolific author. His new book is called Inside Money. Brown Brothers Harriman and the American Way of Power. It's pretty comprehensive, as you can gather. Uh, but he's had a bunch of other books. I think this is book number twelve or something. Um, one of your earlier ones I got was Leading Indicators: How you know the numbers that we use for economics don't uh, <laughs> don't aren't are no longer fit for purpose, and we maybe want to get into that a little bit at some point too. Um, so you're also um, a fellow at the the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, part of the Progress Network at the New America Foundation, and as I mentioned, prolific author, writer. I don't know how you have to time to do all that stuff. But, uh, so anyway, welcome. Thanks, you. So um, Zachary and I first met, and I think this is supremely ironic given your recent book. Uh, we met at a place called Arden House, which is up in Harriman, New York,
1: exactly.
0: <laughs> when uh, you were attending a course that I was running at one point, and that was back in the day. It was a while ago.
1: It was two thousand three, four, something like that. Wow!
0: So, tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you get to be, you know, where where you are? Because you've done so many things. You've authored for famous journals. You've written books. You've been a commentator. You've started this foundation.
1: You know, as I've said, it's I find those questions much harder than you know, who are we? What's the nature of capitalism going forward? You know, what's American power going to be? Those questions of like, how did you become yourself, strike me as. Infinitely more complicated. Oh, sorry. Than, <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you than can only big, tell the bits that are <laughs> important um,
1: I, I mean, I, look, I was an academic. I decided I didn't want to be an academic. I got a PhD. I knew that I wanted to write books, and I was an author in the late '90s in New York during kind of the first internet bubble craze. I started doing a lot of day trading because I was bored, and everybody was day trading. You know, that was the time when the joke was you'd go into a taxi and, and you'd have a running conversation with your taxi driver. This is pre-Uber about what Yahoo's stock was trading at post ipo and uh, it's always a
0: danger sign right
1: (laughs) always a danger sign although you know in the greater scheme of things the bubble was a bubble but the the transformation of the the economy into a digital economy was real so you know it it wasn't all nothing uh and i got i was antsy and i didn't really want to be a full-time writer just because it wasn't enough for me you know energetically um i'm also more of a I wanted to be more engaged, right? When you're writing, you know this, when you write a book, you are always basically taking a step out and, and observing. Uh, and there's a difference between ideas and action. They're, they're both crucial and they're both essential and they both make the world go around. But I kind of wanted to be a little more, not just talking the talk, but also walking a walk. And it was somewhat between going into an internet company and going into the finance world. And because of 9-11 and my girlfriend at the time, who then became my wife, who's Father had a, a financial firm in the World Trade Center, and everybody died. And he called me up and said, you got to come work for my company. So I did, because I would have, if it had been a tire manufacturer in, in Passaic. Um, and so some combination of nepotism, tragedy, and skill, I ended up in that financial world. And I had two conditions at the time. I said, look, I, I will do this. I actually want to do this. I didn't really know him at the time, but I, I'm not going to stop writing books, and I'm, I'm not going to take out my earring and uh he's like fine the books as long as they don't get in the way of work and i said look i'm not golfing on saturdays and i stay up late at night so i kept writing books mm-hmm. i said i'll get back to you about the earring uh, and then he said no it's great it'll appeal, appeal to, like the young demographic You can be on tv we can be like the hip money management firm uh-huh. so i did that and then i ran a hedge fund and then i was the head of strategy for a pretty considerably large financial technology company and then i kept writing books and this book is probably the closest integration a couple of others too but this is a in many ways an integration of my higher life as a american historian and academic and the 20 years i've had in the financial world and it you know it's a nice synthesis marriage yeah
0: mm-hmm. i could see that so you had really unprecedented access to their archives as i understand it
1: yeah although to be fair anyone could have unprecedented access because th- they had 150th anniversary in 1968 brown brothers Herman did and as, as people probably don't know because it's not it was a household name and is now basically a, a vestigial memory of Wall Street it still exists but it's the oldest financial firm uh, still in existence which doesn't make it worthy, right a long life is not necessarily an interesting life but in many ways I think they had a very interesting life in 1968 they put their founding at 1818 which I frankly disagree with and that we don't have to get into that but they commissioned a corporate history as, as people are want to do and the gentleman who was commissioned took four years gathered all of their archives in one place and then at the end of it deposited those boxes about 120 I mean I don't remember the exact number because some of them are photographs and 120 plus boxes are deposited at the New York Historical Society so anyone can go and look at those you don't need permission from the firm to access their historical record and I don't write a whole lot about the contemporary firm um, not because they're not viable and not because they're not ongoing but they're not you know, part of the point of the book is they're not really a stunning story narratively in the past 30 years. Um, and in many ways, that's a really good thing. Like part of of my point about the book is, you know, you want a whole bunch of firms doing good work, honorable work for reasonable prices, making money that aren't in the headlines, you know, that, that, like you want that as part of a system Mm -hmm. and you want to know that that's part of a system, even if it's not something you're writing about in headlines. Mm-hmm. So I did have their cooperation and I did have their goodwill and I did want to assure them that what I was writing was going to be honest, right? I write about slavery. I write about their role in American imperialism, but by no means, you know, I, I, I don't have an agenda of, oh my God, you know, look at the evils of capitalism or for that matter, an agenda of, oh my God, look at the virtues of capitalism. Um, and they, you know, they have a culture of, they don't want to be in the news. So the mm-hmm. idea of writing the book, initially for them was uh anxiety producing you know they they are the kind of culture that every day their name is not in the news is a good day mm-hmm. so the prospect of a book that would receive attention and for better or worse i mean this book has received you know some attention mm-hmm. uh what made them nervous right oh uh, uh. and and i i did i think uh, i mean i was i respected that mm-hmm. concern and and kind of walk them through it and because i do think it ultimately is a very uh positive book about their legacy and i think they Mm-hmm. they see that now
0: well what a lot of people don't realize is is just how much power that firm wielded at one point i mean the shape of our modern financial system the infrastructure the dollar <laughs> you know the, i mean it, a lot a lot happened in 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 the nature of, of of what they were doing that i think is under understood but i think one of the um more interesting questions you do ask in the book is this question of what's enough
1: yeah and you know, there's been a kind of a uh, a minor through line since the 1970s of people questioning the more maximizing part of capitalism, mm-hmm. as opposed to when is enough enough. I mean, Robert Skidelsky, who was the great grand biographer of, of Keynes, uh, actually wrote a book with his son about 10 years ago called "When Is Enough Enough." I mean, it's people have been asking this question about particularly developed world capitalism for the past 50 years so i'm by no means unique or i think you know particular in that question but raising it through the lens of a financial firm partnership Mm -hmm. that still makes considerable amounts of money just not crazy money i mean the firm today is about five thousand people they have about two billion dollars in revenue five to seven hundred million dollars in profit which is you know a lot of money in human terms but it's not crazy hedge fund money and it's not Goldman Sachs money um and and it, it, part of the question is they are a firm in the past 30 years that was content to be what they are and didn't strive to be something that they're not and I, I there's a vignette at the very end of the book where they were doing a lot of business in the 1980s um and you know they 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 did a it's a very wonky part of the financial industry where they were harmonizing uh, foreign bought stocks in U.S. dollars and clearing them for uh, U.S. mutual funds. Right? Not really sexy stuff, but really essential if you're going to be a, a U.S. investment firm buying foreign stocks. You know, how do you price it that night? Mm-hmm. And they were getting all this business from huge clients, Lloyd's of London and Citibank and Goldman, because they they were really good at this. And and in the book, you'll understand why because they had been part of the transatlantic commercial system since really that transatlantic commercial system got invented and evolved from 1800 between the US and the UK Mm -hmm. uh but they were getting too much business more business than they were set up to handle Mm -hmm. and one of the partners told me look the typical answer beginning in the 1980s when deluged with clients wanting to hire you would have been for the partners to have an emergency meeting sit down and go how many offices do we need to open? How many people do we need to hire? What, what do we, how do we need to scale up to match the business? And, and they said, we don't want to scale up to match the business. We want to be a partnership. We want to be private. We want to be the size that we are. Um, and their question was, what business is appropriate for our size, not what size is appropriate for our business? And they fired their clients, you know, they basically wrote them a letter and said, I'm sorry, you know, you'll have to take your business elsewhere because we, we can't meet it. And we're not going to, we're not going to expand in order to meet it. And I thought that was a really telling anecdote, anecdote, true story of a firm's culture that seemed so antithetical, given what, what I know most companies and certainly what most financial firms do.
0: hmm. Yeah, absolutely. The, the culture really changed. And I thought it was interesting in the book that you pin the, the kind of moment we all became aware of this to the 1987 movie, Wall Street. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember I was in New York, you know, in the 80s. Um, and, it, you know, it was almost like, like you had this turning point of everything kind of changed. And, you know, when, when I began teaching at Columbia in the 90s and by then, you know, there was this well-worn rut between Columbia and Wall Street. Uh, And that's what our students wanted to do. That's what caused the massive expansion of the MBA program in the 1980s. Everybody, you know, get an MBA and get rich was kind of the the model. But I think this underlying assumption that there's no such thing as enough is really, really interesting. It was John... um, Bogle, who, uh, he has a story uh, in the book, which is called Enough, and he recounts um, being invited to some fancy hedge fund manager's place in the Hamptons. And um, uh, his companion said, how do you feel knowing that, you know, you won't make in a year what this guy made yesterday? And Bogle's response was fascinating. He said, well, I have something he'll never have. And the, <laughs> his partner said, what's that? And he said, enough. <laughs> right. That's such an interesting mindset, though, because we, we you know, and I look, I mean, I go to these CEO things, right? And um, and and at, even at that level, even when like every minute you're making a million dollars or whatever, you know, the the, the the ones lower on the pecking order are jealous of the ones higher on the pecking order's corporate right. jet. And it's like, it's all a question of, you know, let's keeping score, I guess. And- so This
1: and- has been going on for a while. So the, mm-hmm. there's a story in the book about E.H. Harriman. So Edward Harriman, who, as you mentioned, his estate Arden on the Hudson was one of the largest private estates mm-hmm. in 1900, um, and the the part that still exists in the Columbia for a while used as their executive education and offsite is is a tiny portion of the actual estate. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes on a big expedition to Alaska because he's sort of a naturalist and that's his thing, and 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 Harriman. Was was one of the grand railroad barons uh, of the end of the nineteenth, early twentieth century, and for a brief period yeah. of time, controlled along with J.P. Morgan and James Hill, the, the Northern Securities Company, which, which was which
0: Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, remember which Cassidy that
1: Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I work for Mister. E.H. Harriman, um, uh, Peacock. I, I'm forgetting the name of the guy in it, uh, and uh, so he the, the, that the Brown Brothers Harriman. The Harriman part comes from the the railroad empire of, of E.H. Harriman and his son, Averell Harriman. And they go on an expedition to Alaska, and he brings along John Muir, because he can pay for the grandest, most famous naturalist of his day. And they would have these campsite fire debates, somewhat structured. Um, And at that time, the gospel of wealth, which had been Andrew Carnegie's sort of later in life questioning of what's it all about, right? What's the money for? It was the, the beginning, really the progenitor of the giving pledge that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, you know, they should give away your money or at least portions of it. In your lifetime, which of course Mackenzie Bezos is trying to actually live up to, and Lorraine Powell Jobs, and a whole series of others. So, this was kind of part of the patchwork 100 years ago in that first creation of absurd or massive wealth on the very, very top of the income spectrum. And at one point, John Muir says to e. H. Harriman, like what you just said, the boggle said, um, I am richer than you, sir. And Harriman's like, What do you mean? And and, and Muir says, I am. I." I have enough. I'm content with what I have in the natural world. And you are always striving for more. And there is never more that's enough. And Harriman took um, umbrage to this and said, no, that's not true. And I'm not interested in money for money's sake. I'm interested in money for the effect that it can have on, on the human and the natural world. Cause they had this idea of like money could actually allow you to conserve nature. So it was a more complicated mix, but these, you know, the, these debates within not just American, but a lot of other societies have been percolating and they kind of, they, they, they wax and they wane, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're in a waxing moment in 2020 about these things. I just think it's fascinating that it, we're not in a unique moment. Mm-hmm. We're in a, the next turn of this particular wheel. And finally, and I don't wanna keep rambling, the fascinating thing about the 1987 film Wall Street is Oliver Stone, who, who, who writes it and directs it, Gordon Gekko, the character played by Michael Douglas, who's some composite of Ivan Bosky and Michael Milken and a kind of sensibility, was supposed to be the villain. Right, right. Right? And even though he's played with immense seductive charm by Douglas, what's fascinating is that by your class in the 90s, he's the hero.
0: Oh, totally. Totally. Which was not
1: the intended lesson in the movie. And it's very similar to the Wolf of Wall Street film with Leonardo DiCaprio that came out a bunch of years ago. Where... You know, at the end, you're kind of rooting for him. You're not rooting for the FBI agent, right?
0: Right. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating how we get swept up uh, by the stories, by the stories. So are you, I'm sure you are familiar with the work of Carlotta Perez? Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of her arguments, which I'm, I'm kind of turning over in my mind, is that these these capitalist manias, the bubbles, the excessive financialization actually serve a purpose, which is that they suck productive capital into building the infrastructure on which the next wave of change, productivity, enhancement, and potentially a golden age can be built. And I think that's a very interesting argument.
1: Yeah, and I think we, you know, part of the oscillation, particularly in American society, is that we're not good with shades of gray. You know, we're very good with black and white. You know, it's great, it's evil. And, and and the story of J.P. Morgan, which I do a little bit in the book, but other people have written about a lot more, is like the perfect iteration of that. You know, J.P. Morgan is the hero of the financial system in 1907 when he bails out the banks. And he is the villain of the financial system when he's hauled in front of Arsène Pujo's committee in 1913 to be kind of the villainous exhibit A of the money trust, the, the, the cabal that's controlling society. And, and robbing the American heartland of its, of its birthright to enrich and line the pockets of East Coast elites. And you know in a six year period, right? He goes from God to devil. And, and, and we do this repeatedly in our society without kind of stopping in between and realizing that you know, both are true. My, my point about Brown Brothers, by the way, in, in the book is they were selfish and self-serving and selfless, right? They understood that they private gain and public good can't endlessly be detached and uh you can't endlessly enrich yourself and beggar the commons and that was part of their culture from the 1820s and i think a virtuous one even with all the vices of elitism and anti-semitism and slavery and you know like i don't whitewash that Mm -hmm. um the idea that 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 financial accumulation at a particular period of time while it creates huge imbalances also sets the stage for certain things um is I, i think both true and fascinating right the railroad boom in the 1870s 80s and 90s uh, almost everybody who invested in the railroads initially lost their money the people who made the money were the people who bought the bonds at pennies after the people who invested in the first wave of railroad construction went bankrupt
0: mm-hmm.
1: very similar to what happens in the 1890s right the world comes of the world and it was much more about worldcom than it was about yahoo meaning it was the, the the internet bubble was a small portion of the telecom bubble Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the people who invested in those pipes lost their money. There was way too much capital investment in the short term, given the return short term. But, uh, but if those pipes hadn't been built and those railroads hadn't been built, y- you don't have the 20th century industrial next stage of American power. And if those pipes hadn't been laid, pipes meaning the fiber optics, not you know, lead pipes, the pipes of, of the 1990s, you don't have the internet boom Mm-hmm. of the of the aughts in the two thousand tens. You know, there there's no smart there's no Apple's iPhone without the overinvestment in in fiber in the nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. And you know, like it that doesn't mean we should lionize overinvestment, a few people getting, you know, shamelessly rich on the misery of others, but nor should we demonize it, I think, to the degree that we do.
0: Well one a of the things point. uh Carlotta's work just makes me think about is the utility of some of that behavior that, you know, it's not, as you said, it's not black and white. It's it's these investments actually built that infrastructure. And I was working with a bunch of telecom firms right around that time. And it was one of those situations, if you were a leader in one of those firms when they were doing, say, the UMTS bidding licenses, you know, if you were a leader in one of those firms, you were really between a rock and a hard place because you knew in your heart of heart that this was probably gonna be a money losing investment. And yet, if you didn't make the investment, your investing community would be saying, well, you're not you're not betting on the future. You have no vision for growth. What, what are you doing? And so you were kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation right. as an incumbent company. Um, and then there was the fascinating side story. I don't know if you followed it about this. Um, it was a little telecom company that kept like jumping in bidding price would get up a little bit then like Deutsche telecom or somebody would come in after them they, they'd leave they'd sort of see how things were going then they'd jump in again and then they, it was like a ratchet effect on the price of those licenses <laughs> you know you could almost see it happening like over over the time
1: right like they were they were getting the bid up taking yep. you know buying and then selling when they when they got the when they manipulated the bid up I mean it was a, a form of market manipulation although not one that was easily regulatorily caught.
0: Well, right. I mean, you know, who knows? <laughs> institutions take a while to catch up with uh, what's going on. So um, one of the things that you talked about in the book was this idea that, um, as you said before, that, that, you know, their class could not thrive unless everybody did. Do you think that we're at a moment where we're starting to, you know, here and now begin to have that conversation more realistically?
1: I don't know, right? I mean, I know on the one hand, you have the business roundtable, you have CEOs like Larry Fink of, of BlackRock, to some degree, Jamie Dimon in the financial world. And then, of course, you know, CEOs like Herbert Jolie of, of Best Buy. And there's clearly a move globally toward at least the, the patois of corporate responsibility and corporate citizenship and the idea that the, the purpose of a corporation is not purely to enrich shareholders. Um, that there are multiple stakeholders. I don't love the stakeholder jargon, by the way. I don't know why, I guess, because it's the way it's used. Mm -hmm. But the idea that a company and a collective has a series of responsibilities that are interlinked, um, and that if you pursue any one of them detached from the others, you ultimately create severe societal imbalances. Look, I think that's vital. And, and, And to the degree that there were elites in American capitalism in the 19th century who kind of understood not always consciously um, what I keep jokingly refer to as the Spider-Man view of society, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these elite institutions like Groton and these, these private schools in the late 1900s, and then even the elite schools like Yale at all, you know they were partly in the business of training the elite and they were all young men and they were mostly white young men um training them that they had responsibilities as elites right that that they couldn't just be in it for themselves they had to kind of be in it for them for their class but for their country for their society and and the turn in culture in the 60s and 70s against that elitism partly because of the effects of Vietnam partly because of a sense it was anti-democratic and hierarchical and exclusionary all true <laughs> it mm-hmm. was exclusionary it was if not anti-democratic it was kind of questionably democratic you know the idea of like the people are 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 are, are too dirty and and unpredictable to be left to their own decisions but the flip side but you had an elite that believed that it had a responsibility to society, and that their actions implicated not just their own world, but the globe. In the case of the mid twentieth century American elite and the power that mm-hmm. the United States had globally, and I think there's something to be learned from that, not returned to, right? Because you don't want to return to. If like you and I would have had no seat at those tables, yeah. And and I don't think we want that world, right? If you weren't born the right gender, the right class, the right religion, the right place, you know, thank you very much. You you stay in your lane. We'll will lead the world Mm -hmm. and but the responsibility factor um you know I'm I'm highly critical of of tech elites writ large right now Mm -hmm. uh and for every generalization there's I'm sure lots of legitimate exceptions and you could point out people but you know to the degree that the tech elite in the past 10 years have gotten vastly rich and the companies have become incredibly powerful Mm -hmm. without seeming to understand that there's a social contract there. There's a degree to which if you shape the world you're in, you have a responsibility to actually engage that world and, and, and confront the implications, mm-hmm. even if unintended, of your business models, of your practices. Um, and, I, and I think like, the, the WASP elite that Brown Brothers represented you know, had that. That's why they went into government. It wasn't really for power, per se. They had the power. Um, It was for genuinely for public service, which again was Mm self-serving, but of service, Mm -hmm. you know, all the, and and I wish that like, you know, tech elites in Silicon Valley was much more of that mindset insofar as it recognized, hey, we should be engaging public discussions about privacy, Mm -hmm. about who gets to use whose data and for what profit, about, you know, control versus uh, openness about information and, and, you know, both wants to be free and people want to charge for it. Like that should be a conversation Mm -hmm. with government, with the public, with its constituents, all of it. And I I don't see that.
0: Yeah, no. And I mean, in my most recent book, um, I spend a chapter on Facebook and its business model um, and basically make the argument that if people had any clue what Facebook was Gathering about them and how, what to what purpose they would put it, there would be there would be a revolution. But you know, I think another really interesting phenomenon, um, and I'd like to come back to this conversation about about the balance. Um, but another interesting phenomenon to me is that institutions always take what, 25 years to catch up with reality on the ground. Right. Yeah. So by the time we kind of figure out where we stand on privacy, appropriate use of third party data how much I can collect about you. Like, is it legitimate to, to do this at all? Uh, by the time we figure that out, you know, the reality will already have changed a couple of times.
1: Right. We, we, we pass regulatory frameworks that that it's basically, it's the equivalent of fighting the last war, yeah. right? We're, we're in a constant state of like a Maginot no line. You know, we're always, <laughs> we're always trying to protect against the abuses of the past. And by the time that we do at a government or regulatory level, mm-hmm. the abuses of the present and the future have already right. made manifest.
0: Well, there was a um, the I think one of the co founders of um, what's the company 37 say Basecamp, um, who made an observation. He said, Look, if you want to fix the data problem, just make it illegal to capture this data and to preserve it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's simple enough, although it seems sort of uh, 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 you know, inconceivable, but um quite seriously, there's a lot of discussion that, you know, we, this thing is just spun out of control and we really, we have no way of getting the genie back in the box on the one hand. On the other hand, um, you know, there's serious social harm being done and and we're not somehow having that conversation.
1: Or pay people for their data. I mean, I think that micropayment idea that uh, Jaron Lanier talked about years ago, um, even though it wouldn't amount to much in terms of actual payment, like my data, your data is close to worthless. Yep. Uh, that it's only worth something in aggregate but it's worth something Mm -hmm. and even the even the payment of it in a de minimis level Mm i i mean this is a whole other conversation i think could change the social contract Mm -hmm. Uh, even if it's not a material change to Mm -hmm. any one of us you know if you got a check for eight dollars a month um but it would change but it would be a high level signaler of uh our data is actually being used for someone else's profit and we you know, we deserve a share, maybe a very small share.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm philosophically very much um, aligned uh, around that. Um, so you you said earlier that you didn't think we were, then you were still on the fence as to whether these conversations were going to be more real. And I'm reminded of, um, I guess, at the end of World War II, um, well, several threads that kind of come together. So the first thing that I'm fascinated by, and in the book, you talk about it as well, is how FDR managed to, keep the ruling class in charge, even as they vilified him for passing some of this really pretty dramatic social legislation, but, you know, it was a way of keeping the reins of power in the hands of those who had already had it. But then after the um, end of the war, uh, a bunch of business leaders um, got together. I think it was called the Council for Economic Development. And they said, you know, our primary job right now is to create jobs because we have literally tens of millions of people who've been trained to kill people back in the country (laughs) without anything to do, right? And then they, this group of corporate leaders basically agreed that they would you know, make less in profits, try to create a middle class, try to really encourage job creation. And I'm not sure that conversation is one that we're having
1: at the moment. No, and that, I think, you know, once you've, once you've detached the elite and their money and their privilege from the common good, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's hard to put that genie back in the bottle too. Mm -hmm. Although I do think we are endlessly in the process of of remaking our culture or Mm -hmm. making the culture of the future, right? The future is, an unwritten book or an unwoven tapestry and we are all in our ways part of the weaving of that and and I don't think any of it is a given going forward right none of the structures we have are like laws of nature structures they're just human systems that we've created at at, at a moment in time for a purpose that can evolve and change right and I know that can sound hopelessly idealistic in a cynical world but I believe it and I'm going to keep saying it and you know, occasionally I have platforms to do so. So, you know, I do think we can evolve and change. We are capable of doing so. We have done so in the past. You're right that that conversation isn't existing. And I think it's not existing because too many of our, you know, too many of our people of privilege and institutions of privilege have become, have, have, have talked themselves into a belief that, uh, there was a hilarious line that Tom Lehrer had about, uh, you know, Werner von Braun was the Nazi missile scientist who came over and helped develop, uh, the U S missile program. And he joked, you know, they go up. I don't care if as they go down, that's not my department, says Werner von Braun. the idea of, Hey, I don't, whatever the social imbalances of my profit and my success individually or corporately, I, I I'm not responsible for infrastructure and roads or, and that's a Milton Friedman kind of narrow definition of mm-hmm. what a company is about. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of individual change in that, and I see a lot of absence of individual change in that. There's mm-hmm. certainly nothing comparable to what happened in World War II, where in fact, you know, American elites also believe that um, because they perceive there to be an existential threat of communism, that unless the world around thrived, unless Europe thrives and you know, other parts of the world, that the American system would be imperiled and, th- and therefore they would be too. So they spent a lot of money, you know, the Marshall Plan and aid to Europe was not altruistic, right? It wasn't like, oh, it was pretty much, we have to spend money to create markets mm-hmm. um, or, or a vacuum will be created and then communism will come in and then we won't have markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was still an understanding that there is a larger context here that, that we are both individually and collectively responsible for.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that we see now is, you know, as we look at the conversations about things like structural racism, you know, how how many of these structures, if you're not subject to them, you don't actually realize how pervasive they are. And that's something I've been thinking about quite a bit, which is. Um, you know, if you if if you start here and I start there, <laughs> you know it's going to be pretty hard for me to catch up, right? right. Um, and I think that's a, that's a very interesting conversation, which I I hope we are going to have more of, because um, I, I I think that's another situation which hurts everybody, right?
1: Yeah, and look, I mean, I I've been very clear. I have a, I've just written a long book uh, that is unabashedly a history of white men, rich white men in America, mm-hmm. um, all of which are deeply exclusionary categories, uh, from a high place of privilege. What I do think is important about that group of privileged people is, you know, they, they were born on third base. I mean, obviously not the founder, who was an immigrant, Alexander Brown comes from Belfast. And
0: came, I was fascinated by that. My, my, um, husband grew up near, not too far from Belfast.
1: Right. And that, that was, you know, Irish linen was the big, was the big import, uh, big export of Ireland at the time. Um, but subsequent generations, you know, they were born on third base, but they didn't think they'd hit a triple. Right? They they knew they were born on third base. They that's were told, kidding. you were born on third base, dude, mm-hmm. and you have a responsibility because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Like that's a crucial differential. You know, there's always going to be people of privilege and there's mm-hmm. always going to be positions of power. Mm-hmm. The question is, what do those who are in it do with it? You know, mm-hmm. do they believe a la Donald Trump that They were self-made and they have no responsibilities to anyone except themselves and some notion of you know the collective that's highly selective or do they believe that you know back to that the great power great responsibility Mm -hmm. equation Mm
0: -hmm. so one of the things that intrigues me and this is related to the book when you know the financial firms went from being partnerships right where as a partnership you know, a lot of your net worth was tied up in the value of the partnership. And when you retired is when you got your big payout, right? And so your incentives were very much about, I'm not going to take short-term make short-term decisions that are highly likely to blow the place up at some stage, I'm gonna be very mindful of the balance between today and tomorrow, I guess is the way I would frame that. Um, and as these financial firms became publicly traded, as the shareholders were willing to like, pump money into them, and it wasn't the partner's own personal capital that was at risk, it, it really changed the mindset. Um, and and you know, I, you could feel it happening, right? I mean, when I was growing up, <laughs> banking was boring. Like, like the A-level people did not go into banking. Like right. the brightest, and best minds at graduate school did not go into banking. It was sort of, you know, you made your margin and you got a little bit of, above what the regulators would allow. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't seen as this super sexy Wall Street kind of place where, you know, you could do all this financial engineering and come out on top. And and then, you know, we we continue to have these crashes. So the crash of 87 was a big one. Then we had one, you know, a few years ago, uh, 2008. Um, and I just wonder, you know, is there some way we can get people thinking more about what are the what are the ways we need to build resilience into the system um, that that kind of push them to think more about what what could be the downsides down the road.
1: Like I think part of it is you know we do have to confront the structural limitations of publicly traded entities of scale and part of those are uh, the way in which that has evolved in the past 30 to 40 years means that, gains are are likely private and and risks are put on the public balance sheet whether that's public shareholders or actually the government itself Mm -hmm. and obviously 2008 2009 with companies like AIG in particular showed that you know the ultimate risk falls on the government balance sheet because if you're systemically uh, too big to fail that's that is a problem of the structure right a brown brothers harriman and a Brown Brothers partner in 1880, when confronted with a railroad investment, was aware of every dollar they put into that was a dollar that they could personally lose. Mm-hmm. So you put up a million dollars, you might personally lose a million dollars because mm-hmm. you're a partnership; it's your money, exactly. And even if you create a consortium, and all of these were consortiums, right? So nobody was fully exposed to anything. Even so, is your money? You know, in today's world, I'll just use Tim Cook as an example, not not as a negative person, just as an example. Apple could do a big deal. They could buy a I don't know a supply chain company because they don't want to keep outsourcing it. Tim Cook could potentially make ten million dollars personally on that deal. Mm-hmm. There's no deal that Tim Cook is going to lose ten million dollars personally. I mean, mm-hmm. unless it's a catastrophically bad deal and Apple stock you know craters by X percent, um, that ten million loss is going to be disseminated amongst shareholders and bondholders and banks and Apple and stock and you know, all of it um same is true of a private equity fund today mm-hmm. right it, it you know apollo management's never going to have the, per- the people run it are not going to personally lose the money that they personally stand to gain and they're not even a public company but they you know institutional yeah. investing and lots of people that they are they are investing other people's money right mm-hmm. um so what do you do about an incentive structure that allows that how do you change that right and I'm not hugely in favor of a punitive regulatory framework because I don't think punitive regulatory frameworks change culture. They may change incentives, but they don't change culture. And usually if you haven't changed the culture, the negative regulatory incentives lead to kind of even more perverse culture that tries yeah. to either avoid Sir them. Actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. um, So, you know, wealth of good intentions, lots of unintended consequences. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, have, I have to confess that other than trying to do my part of putting out a series of messages that people may hear that they they may inculcate within their own organizations, I don't have the perfect silver bullet answer to these incentive structures.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm well capitalism doesn't as a general rule you know i was talking to um rebecca henderson you may know her book uh, reimagining capitalism in a world on fire it's a terrific book uh, if you haven't read it it's it's uh, I a mean, no, no
1: i actually i just funny enough i just bought it last week so.
0: did you really yeah it's great it's a great book and she's i
1: bought it last week because in a narcissistic sense it showed up when i was looking at my own book as books you may like and i'm always interested in what affinity algorithm i end up being a part of So if you go to Amazon and you look up inside money, her book showed up and I'm like, oh, I'd heard about this. And then I clicked it on and then I looked at it and then I got it. So, you know, I was driven to her book purely through the narcissism of looking at my own book.
0: (laughs) That's wonderful. I'll be sure to tell her that (laughs) she'll be pleased. Anyway, um, she makes the point that capitalism is fairly bad at independently pricing um goods under various scenarios so when the benefit as you've just pointed out you know excessively accrues to one party and the cost is really diffused you know it's really hard for capitalist systems to sort that out similarly if if the um if the the cost is really really borne only by a very very limited group of people, you know, disadvantaged people or, or people who are being discriminated against by race or whatever it is. And the broad majority benefit a little or don't really notice. Again, capitalism really struggles with properly pricing those things. Um, and her, her, I guess her thesis is that there are ways we can actually begin to reimagine that um, and and ways we can bring about social change, you know, by by one step at a time, kind of changing cultures. And I think she used as an example, the Clean Air Act, you know, that rivals managed to put their rivalries aside for the benefit of something that no one person benefited from, but as a society, we all benefited enormously.
1: Yeah, I'm sure, you know, there are lots of interesting ideas out there about, back to the uh, versions of paying individuals for their data because other people are profiting from it. I mean, you could, you could certainly, uh, within a company, socialize gains a little more within a capitalist system, um, and that, and not stratify them to the degree that they often are. Mm-hmm. And again, there are some, particularly private companies, that do this, right, because they're not answerable to a certain uh, demand of public investors about how profits are utilized, right? If and 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 there are some indications of this changing, right? I mean, Walmart has been progressively small p progressively raising wages for its employees more rapidly and independent of uh, either federal minimum wage raise or states again this is partly self-interested one it forestalls bad pr it forestalls legislation Uh, it also turns the million and a half workers or however many number it is right now at walmart maybe it's closer to two million into viable customers right if you don't pay your own workers of that scale enough money to actually shop at your stores you have denied yourself a massive almost embedded customer base right so there is a real self-interest in paying your own workers at a place like walmart more because they then become your customers Mm -hmm. which is not quite the same at other firms right you don't have the same dynamic at uh, at honeywell right no honeywell worker is going to buy a An engine, you know, or an aircraft. (laughs) Um, But the idea, you know, it's a similar principle of Mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of reasons to not do what so many companies do uh, in pooling all the rewards at the top. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, And look, I mean, companies have found with with visionary or at least strong willed corporate leaders that if you essentially tell Wall Street and Wall Street analysts, um to go you know what right like no i'm i'm going to raise wages i don't care if that cuts into my quarterly earnings because it's good for my business or mm-hmm. i'm going to reinvest in the business and I, I don't care if that depresses um, uh, my you know q3 forecast it's mm-hmm. it, this is what's going to build long-term value the fact is you know wall street will ultimately follow that lead oh yeah
0: we actually have a metric that we use. Um, it's called uh, the imagination premium, and basically, it's a way of breaking down a company's market cap into what investors expect from you, just because you're throwing off so much cash, up, the value of operations, and the value of growth. Which is, you know, you can work out how much is due by having out you know, from operations, and if you if you're worth more than that, that 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 gives you this imagination premium. And what we've found is. Very, very high imagination premium firms basically have everything priced to perfection. But if you can deliver, right, you're, you're, you're fine. So like Amazon, I think their, their imagination premium is like four. I mean, in other words, like a quarter of the company's value actually comes from the cash flow it generates from operations, everything else is for growth. Um, Now, if you're low, if your imagination premium is too low, and this is where I really get intrigued at these CEOs talking about, oh, the short term, the short term, the short term. If you have a low imagination premium, you are highly likely to attract an activist. You are highly likely to be, you know, get a hostile acquisition attempt. Your CEO is highly likely to be shown the door. So we've actually got some uh, research that shows that it's highly correlated with what happens to that leadership team. So one of my hopes is that That and metrics like it can start to be something that we build into the mix more so that a board could say to someone, hey, why, you know, Wall Street's not buying your growth story, right? Let's talk about that. Um, But I think unless that kind of pressure starts being put on leadership, you you do have this, you keep the wheels turning, how's the quarter going to work out kind of mindset.
1: Of course, then you have the Brown Brothers Harriman um, conundrum, which is they probably have a very low imagination premium in their business, uh, very high cash flow premium, mm-hmm. but they have a culture. Back to what I said of that partner in the 1980s, saying we're not going to scale our business to meet demand; we're going to uh, c- curtail demand to meet our business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of my point in, in, in the book, both directly and indirectly, is you don't want a system composed of only one culture, right? Mm-hmm. So. Like Brown Brothers as a firm would never have invested in Amazon or Elon Musk. And they're not even an investment firm in the traditional way now. They're much more of a commercial uh, bank and a wealth manager. But the point being, risk capital at that level just wouldn't have been their culture. Uh, And I think part of the point is you, you want a system composed of a variety of temperaments, right? You don't want everybody bullish. You don't want everybody bearish. You don't want everybody going for the gold ring and 100x return, but you don't want um, uh, no one doing that. And, and and part of what I say in the book, and I've said in interviews, is the ratio of risk capital to stable system capital has gotten way too skewed in the past 30 years, where far too many people are jumping in the risk end of the pool, and not enough people are, are jumping in the risk management end of the pool.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you don't want everybody in one end right right? it's 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 not like i think a world composed only of a brown brothers mentality would be a would be too static Mm -hmm. it would be not innovative enough
0: Mm -hmm. well Um, that's one of the claims that gets made for a lot of european countries right right. that their that their leadership and their business cultures i'll I'll just pick on france as an example are so too much in the in the stable side of things that they don't have the dynamism that um, a faster growth economy might
1: and that's a totally legit criticism. I just think the balance has gotten way skewed within American, particularly financial capital, but it's also true in the large publicly traded companies. It's true in, you know, it's true in a lot of areas of the American economic ecosystem. And I think it's the ratio issue, right? You want, you want risks to be a smaller portion of your overall system than the predominant portion. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and, you know, I know you've taught this for years. It's making people mindful of the fact that you know, money is power. Mm-hmm. Um, but as power, it has the power to destroy just as much as it has the power to create. Allah Schumpeter, right and 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 those at the epicenter of money in particular, the, the the distributors of the conduits for should be mindful of the quicksilver nature of what they have at their disposal. It's like you, you don't want your nuclear scientists to be promiscuous about, about using it. Right, mm-hmm. you want you want them to be mindful of using it, and I feel the same way about money.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, stuff. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit. Um, got a few minutes left on about about the Progress Network, um, the New America Foundation, because you're putting time into that, and then the um, the fellowship at the uh, at the no, Foundation no. for Research no on Equal Opportunity. Yeah, I'd be just interested in hearing what some of those organizations are. What, so. What are their
1: The Progress Network I created at the heart of the pandemic, I had meant to launch it before the pandemic, but ended up launching it at the very end of 2020, so less than a year, of which you are now a proud member of nearly 100 people. And the idea was we live in a world where there's a a cacophony of bad news and a a kind of a generalized conviction that the world tomorrow is going to be worse than the world today. And certainly a pandemic world combined with a, you know, post-financial crisis world combined with a, you know, globally weird world has not done anything for for most people's enthusiasm about the present or the future, particularly in the developed world. Um, You know, optimism and sensibility about the future differs greatly by country. Places like Asia and China tend to be more optimistic about their future because they've been in a rising curve. Places like Western Europe, the United States, Latin America to some degree have tended to be much more pessimistic, partly because we've crested in in our growth profile, partly because we're so affluent, you know, it's partly a product of success. Anyway, the point being, we we live in a world where there's just a cacophony of bad news uh, and a media culture that uses bad news as a way of attracting attention because that's just human nature. I'm not really demonizing the media in that, but there's a lot of people who are talking about uh, how we solve problems we have or that things are not the optic of things being as negative as we think is a distorted one. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of good going on. There's a lot of change. There's a lot of progress. Uh, but we don't tend to pay attention to it for the reasons I just said. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we have a real, both an optimism deficit and a pessimism imbalance in our public narrative. And that there's a lot of people who are individually offsetting that narrative, but because they're individual and they're not a collective, they're always less than the sum of their parts. So a lot of people who are part of the progress network like you or Fareed Zakaria or Tom Friedman or Anne-Marie Slaughter or Steven Pinker, or David Brooks, um, Uh, Bina Ventacarum, you know, there's a whole slew of people of multiple races, genders, ethnicities, who are prominent in their worlds, but are atomized in a culture where the dominant narrative is, we're screwed. And that if you could bring them together and create some network and create a real network effect, you'd create more critical mass that would help us latch on to, we might have problems, but we're solving them, and we might have solved more problems than we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And partly from the belief, not that I am Pollyannish about any of this, that if things are going to hell in a handbasket, it will not be for lack of multiple voices um, saying that we are, warning about it, highlighting it. Mm -hmm. That waterfront is well covered. (laughs) We're screwed waterfront is is well represented. But what you know, the central question I'm asking with the Progress Network is what could go right. We mm-hmm. spend a lot of time looking at what could go wrong.
0: I love that. I love uh, that. What could go right?
1: <laughs> launching a podcast next week, by the way, for those interested. Called oh, the Are, the yeah. Um First twelve episodes will drop over the next you know ten weeks.
0: Fantastic.
1: And uh, that's why I did it. So it's it's a hundred people so far, but it's also a newsletter that sort of highlights interesting, but underexamined stories, not good news. You know, this is not like feel good, uh, firemen rescued cats and trees. It's what are people doing to solve viable problems? What are those problems? And and what is the world going to look like? Mm -hmm. Um, So, and, you know, it's a Twitter feed that we highlight stuff daily, and it's members like you trying to be a megaphone. It's a nonprofit. So the point is, this is in service of those voices mm-hmm. uh, and that ideas matter. You know, I said earlier, culture matters. I think ideas matter I do, uh, and, and the sh- and the, the idea climate in which we exist is as important as the the physical climate and the global literal climate change climate that we exist. So this is like a an idea climate change network.
0: <laughs> I love idea that idea
1: climate that. for the better.
0: Yeah, and um, one of my previous guests was David Borenstein. Um, I he's also a it. member of the program. Yeah, great, fantastic. Um, you know, and he's written the Fixes column for a long time in the New York Times and kind of building on an idea that, I don't know if it was their idea, but it, they certainly popularized it, Chip and Dan Heath talking about, you know, if you want to solve thorny social problems, go find the bright spots. Right. You don't don't just look at where things are all screwed up, find out where people have actually come up with solutions and then see if those can be scaled and replicated. I think it's I think it's just marvelous. That's just great. Well, so what could go right? <laughs> I love that. That's a great question.
1: And that's what we call the newsletter. it's what we're calling the podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, it's something I kind of noodled around with for a while. I, for about four years, I wrote a column for Reuters and the Atlantic called the edgy optimist. And the point was not to be, oh my God, things are great. You know, it, it the edgy part, meaning striving for some degree of realistic optimism.
0: Tim Harford, who um, does uh, a lot of work trying to make data more um, digestible for people, uh, made an interesting observation. He said, you know, yesterday, 150,000 people were raised out of poverty. He said, that's very important, but it's not news.
1: Right. <laughs> right. And that, and that is, you know, it, we don't, there is no such thing as good news in the sense of the news industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, because good news doesn't sell Mm -hmm. and that's always been true it was true Mm -hmm. for yellow journalism and Pulitzer papers in the 1890s and it's true even more you know the irony of the internet being driven by the immediacy of eyeballs is it's actually made that issue substantially worse yes it has um even as there is a proliferation of channels for ideas you know it's never been easier to get your ideas out there into the ether Mm -hmm. although it's much harder to actually get attention because there's so much right right <laughs> 200 million videos on youtube trying to get someone to watch yours is, is a challenge <laughs> right. um but it's much easier when you're on the soapbox right my my question has been uh can you get on a soapbox and declaim with urgency everybody calm down <laughs> you know or are you just oh. going to be like the kevin bacon character in Animal House, you know, who does that and they get stampeded.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess we'll learn, right? (laughs) Um, So where do people go to learn more?
1: So you can go to www.theprogressnetwork.org or look up The Progress Network on Twitter or LinkedIn or we actually have an Instagram. Like we do a daily dose of progress on Instagram. Oh, wow. Pointing out. That's fun. Data, you know, literal data, not, not. Opinion, um, and uh, and then you yeah, know, and sign up for the newsletter.
0: Awesome! The that oh, that's great. Well, it is so nice to reconnect with you, and we should not let it be so long in between uh conversations going forward.
1: I was gonna say, I have, I'm there's actually a fireplace much like yours right next to me, but I couldn't get it in the in the zoom frame. But I thought it would be very funny if we could have had a fireplace chat, fireplace, a fireplace. <laughs>
0: Absolutely there.
1: I promise it's right there. Uh, Not all.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, Well, thank you so much. And uh, I'm definitely part of the network and I'll be looking forward to see what we can pull off in the months and years to come.